Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're talking about the gospel. What is the gospel? What is the good news of Jesus Christ? Joining me today, we have a group of Two Cities team members from around the world. We have Amber Bowen, who is a PhD candidate in philosophy at Aberdeen. How's it going, Amber? Going well. Thanks, John. And we have Logan Williams, who recently completed a PhD in New Testament at Durham University. How's it going? Hey, John. And we have Chris Song, PhD candidate in New Testament at Aberdeen. How's it going, Chris? Doing good. Great to be here, guys. And we also have Chris Porter, who's a postdoctoral fellow at Trinity College in Melbourne. How's it going, Chris? Yeah, going well, going well. All right, well, let's go ahead and dive in. There's a big, buzzy conversation going on at the moment, if you've been following along in the blogosphere, about the nature of the gospel. And of course, in this conversation, we want to talk about the gospel. We want to talk about how it relates to justification by faith, especially as Protestants. But let's begin with how we talk about the gospel. Let's, let's begin with our discourse about the gospel. Yeah, John, I'll take a stab. Uh, I think kind of methodologically, we just have to remember that when we say stuff like, what is the gospel, and, and people write things back and forth about the definition of the gospel, this is a central concept in uh, Christian theology. Because it is so central, it can become kind of a way, kind of, a way of, of identifying yourself over against others. So what I've seen in many of these conversations that have gone around is that instead of collaborating to investigate with one another how the New Testament talks about the gospel, how might we theologically construct ideas about its definition. Instead, uh, it often becomes a bit of a battleground where people say, oh, well, I have my definition of the gospel, and are these people going to concede to my arguments? And it becomes so standoffish that the debate doesn't become a kind of collaborative inquiry into you know, theological construction you know, in which we can all learn from one another, but rather a way of defining yourself over against others to increase your social identity, uh, really about winning points for you in your own camp than about a kind of collaborative search for truth. Um, and I guess I'll punt to Chris Porter, who is the social identity king. <laughs> Describe me as a, as a king of anything is kind of awkward, but I think you're right, Logan. I think uh, one of the, the areas that this brings up is how we how we do discourse and how and what what are we saying by the discourse that we're doing one of the the ways that we define ourselves is by the groups that we're part of the social identities that we have and they're really defined both through what we ascribe to so and what we hold so in this case a definition of the gospel that we hold to but also uh, by what we don't hold to, uh, how, you how you can, to use the technical term, discriminate, how you can differentiate your group from other groups. And so you've simultaneously got to hold to a definition of something, but you've also got to hold to not being someone else. So every, every football team, every sports uh, team will have their team, the supporters will ascribe identity to their team but it's, there's all, always those rivalries with other teams so i'm a cheesehead which means that you know our big rivalry is with the with the vikings uh you know and and with Chica and with the bears we're not Bears supporters we're not viking supporters but we are packers and in the same way your definition of the gospel your definition of many things entails both what it is but also what it is not and mm -hmm. so in some ways you actually need uh, what it is not 
to be able to define the set or define the boundaries of where you are, which is where I think I find it's really interesting because there are some people who have been advocating for many years about center-bounded sets versus edge-bounded sets, so groups which are defined around the, the core concepts and then you leave the fringes mm-hmm. uh, sort of fuzzy. But inevitably, even as those groups grow, suddenly there's these things which come to come to light or come to the fore where you need to define boundaries. You need to define the, the outer of the group. Uh, in social identity terms, you need what is a comparative fit. What, how do I compare myself with other groups? Not just the normative fit, what is normative for my own group? And so we, you get stuck in this uh, almost this Hegelian process where you're going flip-flopping between your normative fit and your comparative fit and trying to figure out where you are. Yeah, I guess I'm wondering, Chris, if you think that there's a way of, I mean, it's, Obviously, everyone's going to have boundaries when you know you make an assertion. It's also a negative assertion, and vice versa. Every negative assertion is a positive assertion uh, in some way. But I do wonder if you know we can we can note our disagreements while also not being antagonistic and actually believing that collaboration and learning can happen across you know people whom we recognize as different i just wonder if there's a bit of a unhelpful conflation here between you know the people who think slightly differently from me and the people that i need to completely define myself over against um I mean, it seems like to me this discussion is very parochial it, it is it exists only amongst a very specific set of Christians who have very formal and material similarities. And it seems to me that the kind of antagonism with which this debate has progressed indicates a desire more, again, a desire more to score points for your team than to achieve a common goal. And I wonder if there is a way of seeing that we do actually have a common goal when we have these debates. Yeah. Can I jump in there too? Because I'd love to hear Chris's thoughts on this too. I'm agreeing a lot with Logan and resonating with what he's saying and thinking about just from a philosophical perspective here, which is my one trick pony that I can bring to the table. A lot of my research has been focused on ways that we look at the outside world and ways that we approach the other and how that becomes formative of ourselves and the types of selves that we become. And so obviously in order to have a self-formation, you do need to have a differing other. Otherwise, it's, it's very hard to become a differentiated yourself on your own or in yourself. And so there's a sense in which the not I is very important. However, when we take a position where we define our identity on the basis of I am not X, <laughs> um, you have a negative identity. Like, so you don't have a positive identity in your own right. You don't really know what you are. You just know what you're not. Um, and so it becomes this vacuous kind of self that you, you, you gain as a result of that. And it's, it's a self that is dispositionally turned to the world with a gaze of critique and suspicion and mistrust towards the other. And so thinking about ways that even that kind of disposition towards the world might actually malform the self. Like it's going to have a formative effect on the self. But in what ways is it malforming the self? And I think in Christian thought, we we talk about the importance of critical thinking and critical awareness and critiquing because we have this, you know, the gospel that we're preserving. And we this is a central issue for us. It's 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 vitally important for us. And so we have this extra measure of defense. 
And so I wonder, though, if what we're doing is we're taking this defensive position and we are sharpening our knives, if you will, um, and we're looking at other people's collaboration uh, with this gaze of suspicion, mistrust, and critique. And so when we read what other people write or listen to what they say, we're doing it from the posture of, I'm trying to snoop out what's wrong with this and kind of read between the lines and find those hidden messages or whatever that could be in error. Uh, and so I think that that actually prohibits us from being able to have a conversation with one another uh, because we're so busy trying to read between the lines and prove each other wrong <laughs> that it, it hinders our ability to create and to collaborate together. And at the same time, it creates an identity for ourselves that is one that's just critical of the outside. So, Chris, I'd love to know if you have any applying that more to social to social theory more generally, if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're, you're onto something there. We're having a, an identity which is majoring in comparative fit, majoring in not being some other group or being dissimilar to some other group is actually on the whole fairly unhealthy and it becomes fairly empty uh, over the long period because you have nothing to center the group. You have nothing to, to hold the group to. And at the same time, you're right. You do need something to be able to compare, compare to. But I, I think sometimes we end up in this, this mode where it's, it's far easier to define the boundaries of a group rather than actually defining what the group stands for. So you have, a, in this case, a definition of the gospel, which is relatively fixed, or it's, it's less contentious because it's, it's quite narrow. Uh, everyone can agree to it. And so therefore, you might be able to, to organize a larger group around that co conception. But then in order to defend that conception and hold this quite disparate group together, uh, who are disparate on many other things, quite likely, uh, you need to be able to define boundaries really strongly. And a lot of the social observation points that the, the strongest discourse or the strongest vitriol that is leveled at other people is often people who are closest to you, the people who you understand the most. And so this nearness of group identity uh, means that you need really strong differentiating factors in order to say, I am not part of that group, I am part of my own group. As opposed to, say, in the Yehanan epistles, where you, you get that classic uh, passage saying, we know that they're not of us because they went out from us. If they right. were from us, then they would still be with us. You know, that's, it's kind of this very, it's this definition of who they are by, by not being part of us. And so I think sometimes you end up in this pattern of discourse where we, we need to define what orthodoxy is. And so therefore you look for every single minor heresy or thing that can be perceived as a heresy, and you become more focused on rooting out heretical behavior than you, uh, than you are on promoting orthodoxy. I think that's exactly what, what I'm sensing, is that we spend a lot of time rooting out heresy, which is absolutely an important thing to do, but it, it's questionable when it becomes our, the only activity that we know how to do. To the point that we we it alters our gaze of the world and and it's like one tool in our tool belt that's very important but shouldn't be the only thing that we know how to do in theological discourse. Absolutely, and I, I think it actually hampers our ability to be able to self reflect well because if if all you're doing is externally focused, then there there are quite quite likely many things which should challenge your core beliefs, should challenge your group identity, and 
by being able to respond to those, be able to engage with them and work out the nor- their normative patterns, you actually end up with a stronger identity, a stronger faith in this case uh, than you would otherwise. Uh, so this kind of remind me, reminds me of Bauer's thesis on orthodoxy and heresy, that you need forms of heresy in order to be able to define what orthodoxy is. Does anyone have any reflections on that? I mean, it, it is interesting how the language of heresy gets thrown around for anything that I don't like. And my, I, I wouldn't say necessarily heresy is, is an, an awful category if it has some kind of historical reference. Um, and also is historically nuanced. But I think people love throwing that word around um, just to uh, you know, manipulate the playing field mm-hmm. and try to up the stakes. But, but ultimately, in, in most of these cases, you know, the label of heresy gets thrown around basically when people don't have arguments left. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, what I think is interesting is that even the early church fathers, when they considered something to be quote-unquote heretical, they spent you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages arguing against it. Mm. Um, whereas, mm. uh, you know, in the current climate of social media, whenever people don't like something, they go, oh, that's heretical. Mm-hmm. But they don't spend time actually saying anything about the merits or demerits of a particular view, which in the end is going to be more compelling, right? Mm. Things come and go because they're compelling or not compelling generally for whatever reason, good or bad. But I doubt that nowadays... Um, with how much access people have to information that views are going to die out just because somebody tweeted that something was heretical. Well, how about instead of, you know, speaking apophatically about the gospel in terms of, you know, her- heresy or or these sorts of things, what the gospel is not, right? Can we think together constructively about what do we want to say about the gospel actually? What is the gospel in a cataphatic sense? Hey, uh, so this is Chris. It, it puzzles me that that this question crops up because it, it is essential and it is central. And, and the folks that want to, you know, sort of flag up gospel as something that's that's something to 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 build a platform around. I think that we, you know, there's far worse things that we can start with. So yeah, I think we should definitely be be square on on what what the gospel is. I think what becomes so difficult is is sort of the apophatic it's and what we were just talking about well because the lines become clear when we start talking about what it isn't um let me take my first step when i think about how to explain something you know i i always think about how do i explain it to my kids i mean i'm i'm Mm. telling my kids about the gospel right now i'm a a father you know they're they're actually heading into their teen years so they're actually further along and and what's interesting is that the way that I've explained the gospel to them hasn't changed, but it hasn't been just, you know, just sort of this core set of principles um, that that deal with uh, sin, forgiveness, salvation, atonement. You know, the kinds of ideas that typically at least a certain uh, group of Christians, evangelical Christians, might um, say are indispensable to the gospel. When I talk about the gospel, I, I I use the images that that scripture uses, and there are different images. There's the image of adoption. There's the image of 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 a, of a frustrated and decaying creation, and a God that wants to heal that, and a God that wants to bring people into His family. You know, I you know I use the image of temple and the image of a holy God, and the the imagery that um, nothing impure can enter. And so there's there's a there's a wealth of images that come from within scripture that 
can can really sort of paint a, a really diverse but you know focused picture still on on what it means that the good news that God has acted in Jesus Christ to mm. to reconcile the world um, to Himself. There's 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 such richness there that it would be really hard to be able to you know distill some kind of center and say that anything that is outside of the center is not gospel. And so I I I, I start I start getting nervous when we 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 start having a shell game of what is or what isn't because ultimately the the key thing for me has always been a relational aspect with the person of Jesus Christ. Mm. And um, that's, that's a, a person is very difficult to distill <laughs> into mm -hmm. a, a single idea or a cluster of, of static phrases as if that gets to the heart of something. You, you have to rely on a, a wealth of different images to, to get mm -hmm. to a, a deeper understanding. And, and so um, I, I just, I feel like we're, we're setting ourselves up the wrong way if we're just really going to be able to cordon off these lines. Um, and that's, you know, so when we're, when we're reflecting on this, this recent iteration, and this is just one of many where we get flare-ups over, well, you know, social gospel or, you know, social issues, that's not, that's not the gospel, mm. that's something mm. else. The kingship of Jesus, that's, you know, nobody, no Christian is going to deny that Jesus is king, but that is not the gospel, that's something else. Lordship salvation, as if Jesus must be Lord in mm -hmm. all aspects of your life, that that's that of course jesus is lord but that's not the gospel it must be something else mm -hmm. you know we're mm -hmm. we're 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 kind of moving the targets and i obviously understand the the heart behind a lot of these people that insist on sort of a stable core that gospel must always mean x but there there are there are a lot of consequences to that when mm -hmm. uh, when when we go down that path and some mm -hmm. of it we've already reflected on in terms of the social dynamics of it mm -hmm. but um no, yeah, Chris, I love what you said about the the wealth of different images. I mean, I really think that that's kind of fundamental to this whole concern that that people have ha been having recently. Is I, in my view, there's been a narrowing of the gospel to a particular metaphor, justification, namely. And it seems to me, like you're saying, the wealth of images is is quite quite crucial. Um, I mean, I think when we look at the opening of the Gospel of Mark, you know, when it talks about how Jesus is proclaiming the good news of God, and then the gospel, the euangelion, is, 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 is what he's proclaiming in Mark 1, 14 and 15. It's explicitly unpacked in verse 15, where it says, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news, the gospel, the euangelion. I mean, it's very regal, these sorts of things. We don't exactly get it unpacked beyond that, but the explicit language of preaching the good news is a, is related to the kingdom. It's related to regality, these sorts of things. And of course, that fits how the ancient world would have understood a euangelion. But even, even more so, when we flip to the end of Mark and we look at chapter 14, there's this passage that I find absolutely amazing. It's when Jesus is anointed by this unnamed woman. Mark does not name her, but she anoints Jesus for, for his burial. And it's this amazing image where you have this kind of mixture of recognition by a disciple, this, this unnamed woman, who recognizes that 
Jesus's regality, so the anointing, and his imminent death on the cross actually go together? She's the only character other than the centurion who says, you know, this is the son of God, although there is perhaps some discussion, you know, about the sincerity of that or however we might understand the centurion. At the very least, this is the only disciple who brings these things together because, of course, Peter doesn't want to have anything to do with that, right, in 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 Mark 8 and all of that. But I love what Jesus says, and I think this I think we need to keep this in mind when we're talking about the gospel. He says, truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, I believe McKnight has made this point before, that if our gospel does not include this woman, right, I think that's a problem. And and so I, I think there's a kind of a, an irony in there because she's unnamed, right? And, and Jesus is talking about how wherever the gospel is preached, you know, this will be uh, recalled in memory of her. There's an irony there. There's a sadness in there. And I also think there is a an aspect of how we have narrowed the gospel so much that we've we've kind of left her out. And I, I think our gospels need to be big enough to include her. That's really touching on something crucial. And what I hope emerges on some of the back and forth that's gone in the, in the blogosphere and all of that is an articulation of if, if we're saying something is outside of the gospel, then what other categories are, are operating here? How, how else do we sort something that's not at the heart of the gospel, you know, is that just simply the outworking of the gospel or is it some other category that's not gospel? And I, I, I find it to be unclear when we, when we, when we draw these lines, not, you know, leaving the social dynamics to one side. Now, just thinking as a theological system, what's to be gained by cordoning off something as, as, as something that's to be contained and and then basically creating those lines where things can't sort of work its way in. Just just speaking on Paul in particular, most of Paul's concepts have this sort of interchangeable quality to it, and these things are stackable. Um, Paul will think, you know, you'll see phrases like the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. You've mm-hmm. got these ideas that sort of pile on each other, and you've got words like faith and words like gospel and words like righteousness that get used, not interchangeably, but that get used in ways that can be reconfigured with, with these other sort of related concepts together. You know, I, I fear that something potentially, at least in terms of a, of a system that works, um, something gets missing when we, when we start disconnecting these lines. I think even more fundamentally, as Chris, you're, you're talking about, you know, how do we, how do we avoid or, you know, what gives us the right to draw these certain lines, to emphasize certain things, to say something is center, something's not center, blah, blah, blah. I guess I just wonder if even center, the even metaphor of a circle is just really unhelpful. Because once you start saying X is the center of the gospel, then it, it, it fundamentally operates in competition with other concepts, right? So if something is the center, you can't have two centers. So that means that every other concept becomes more periphery or non-central. Um, and then you start talking about things as non-central implications. And then, and then, and then center, you know, the, the central non-central becomes integral and non-integral. And I just don't think that these, I think these metaphors are really unhelpful for thinking about concepts that are so bound together, things like kingship 
obedience, Jesus's mercy to sinners, etc. You know, what a lot of a lot of the debate has gone around is justification an implication of the gospel or is it the center of the gospel? Um, and can we actually say that, you know, Jesus being king is good news if, we, you know, we don't have justification? And I just think that if we just abandoned the language of center and periphery, if we if we started talking about different, if we started using different metaphors to organize our concepts, we might actually get somewhere. But as it stands, the moment you invoke the notion of center, you already set up a competitive relationship between one concept and another. I would like to know that Stan Porter and John O'Leinbaugh have challenged the notion of using center in Pauline studies. And I think for the most part, it has gone unnoticed, <laughs> at least in, especially in these more popular debates. My second comment, uh, I guess to, to build upon, John, what you're saying, in Mark 1, I think it's easy for people to read the word gospel as referring to a separate conceptual entity than what is described, right? So mm -hmm. he runs around preaching and teaching the gospel. And then he says, you know, the kingdom of God is drawn near, uh, the, time, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is drawn near, repent and believe the gospel. And it's easy for people to go, oh, so he's, he's saying, believe in, you know, X, because the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Right, right. Um, but actually, I think that that article, the gospel, is deictic. Yeah, uh, i.e. it refers back to what has just been said. said. Exactly, exactly. The, the gospel is the fact that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And if I might make an observation, Jesus says nothing about himself being king in that moment. Um, so even uh, amongst these debates, you know, if you want to strip back the gospel all the way to its, you know, bare elements, even in this verse, it looks like this verse just says, God's going to do what he said he was going to do, and he's going to bring his kingdom. And it actually doesn't involve anything about how Jesus is going to enact that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I don't think that, you know, therefore we should run around preaching a, a you know, a Jesusless gospel. But I think it just goes to show that the, the lexical profile of this word, euangelion, i.e., all the kinds of things it can depict and refer to is, is quite broad and kaleidoscopic. And actually, I probably should not use the language of broad, but I'll, I'll, give it, I'll give another example. If I say France won the World Cup, Spain declared war on France, everyone in France went nuts when France won the World Cup. I've used France to mean a geographical region, uh, a group of people, and a, a football team. And yet all of those are really legitimate ways of talking about, of using the word France. Now, if I then say, well, given you know, how I've used France, what is at the center of France? <laughs> you probably just say, that's kind of a dumb question. You're just using this word. And it's not as if those words are unrelated, right? Geographical entity, people in that geographical entity, and then a, uh, a football team that represents that geographical entity, whatever. All those are legitimate uses of that word. They all, you know, interlock with one another in some way or another. But the language of center would would really unhelpfully capture the real kaleidoscopic ways in which this word is used. And I think that we just need, you know, a different set of metaphors to understand how the word euangelion is deployed throughout the New Testament and the way how that should inform our constructive theology. And I think that the moment we begin to ask the question, what is the center of the gospel, we might be off. Uh, on the wrong foot. And the last thing I'll say on this, it's really easy for people to think that the center of the gospel is whatever they think people need in the present. So 
um, if they, if somebody thinks that you know a real danger, uh, theological danger, is works righteousness, then they're going to say that the center of the gospel is justification by faith. If a group of people think that people don't care enough about obedience, then they're going to say the center of the gospel is that Jesus is King and that you should be, you know, faithful and allegiant to Him. Uh, if people think that the center of the gospel is, or the, the biggest problem in the world is is social injustice, then people are going to say the gospel is you know, the social gospel that that Jesus came to to help the poor and the marginalized and and whatever. And I, I think all of those are very important aspects of Christian theology, but. I think that we need to be careful that we're not just taking our contingent social locations and then just projecting them as, you know, warrants to construct an, an objective account of the gospel that that is directed at our personal experiences. And it's not as if theology shouldn't be existential. Of course it should be. It's just that I think people don't recognize their social location when they're making these kinds of arguments. And I think we just need to be more self-aware that like the things that we think at the center of the gospel might actually be more of a reflection of our own anxieties more than, you know, what actually inductively arises from our accounting with the evidence in the New Testament. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree, Logan. I, I think as as a Yehudan scholar, this is a bit odd because, you know, the gospel is never mentioned in mm. John or in the in the Yehudan epistles. But, you know, so, so what, I, what everything I'm saying is just you know, completely irrelevant. But I think it's interesting because the at the end of John, you get the, the sort of the purpose statement in John 20, uh, 30 or 31, which does two things. One, it acknowledges that there are lots of other things that Jesus did. And there's a reference to the things that are not recorded in this book, which I take as actually a reference to John acknowledging that there are other gospels that he know, knows about. He, I, I suspect John at least knows of Mark, if not knows Mark, uh, the, the text of Mark. But it's interesting. He then acknowledges that so there are other con- constructions of the gospel, but here is what is helpful for you at this time, and therefore I'm going to write these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is what is important for his community. But I don't think that obviates any of the other gospel constructions. And it's very, the, the author of John is very careful there to say there are these other gospel constructions and they are codified accurately and correctly for their own gospel time. Yeah, I think that's really helpful, Chris. And um, this is the other Chris. I think it's very helpful to, 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 to create space for that. And, and in defense of not the center, because I completely agree with what you're saying, Logan. But the, the rejoinder to all of this is, well, what do we tell our church? What do we tell our kids? What do we tell friends that want to know what the gospel is? You know, the center aside, you know, we, we, still, we still have to have something, you know, ready to go in, 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 that, in that moment. You know, and this is where everything sort of comes right back up to the table again is, is well, what is it? What is, the, what is the stuff that comes out of our mouth when we try to articulate what the gospel is? And maybe we can just go around the room and, 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 and see, see if, 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 we've got, if we've got an answer to that or if it, if it all comes out the same. I'm actually curious to know. I wonder, uh, as we bring this conversation to a close now, if we could uh, kind of take Chris's prompt as a, as a way to end. How might we all give an, an account, not the account, but an account of the gospel in 10 words or less? 10 words, man, that's, that's, that's a hard task. You're a hard task, Master John. I, I'm not sure I want to be in any of your classes at, uh, <laughs> at college. 
at, at least Mike Bird gives you 130 characters if you're in his classes. <laughs> uh, but but I think for me as a Yohanan scholar, I'm going to take the easy option here. So the the purpose statement of of the Gospel of John. That these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I'm going to take the easy option because these things refer to the entire gospel of John, which imply, you know, give a, a broad sweep, is both about justification and it's about being part of a, a community of believers. It's about being one with with God through the Spirit. It's about having the Spirit. And it's about corporate belief as well as individual belief. Uh, these things are written that you all may believe. So I'm just going to take the easy option out there. I mean, in my mind, the first thing that comes to my mind is, you know, repent and, and believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. There's going to be a lot of people that say, yeah, that's exactly the gospel. Or, you know, there, there might be a proposition that sort of gets it right for a lot of people. But the person of Jesus and the relation that we are called to enter in, you, you can't tamp that down into a proposition. And so that has to take into account all that Jesus is. Mm. as king and as lord and as savior and um as reconciler so a relationship is it, it takes work it takes time it's complex you need a church to do it the sort of the, the 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 words that you say as sort of an entry point into how we get into a relationship with god through christ i totally know that's not 10 words by the way <laughs> the, the first part is the 10 words that we <laughs> repent and believe what comes after the words is the relationship and that that can't be summarized for at least not in 10 words well i guess to reply to that i'll take a stab at 10 words god's kingdom has come through a crucified and risen lord that's one attempt it's nice. not the definitive attempt but, right. but that's that's one attempt and every articulation will sound different depending on to mm -hmm. whom i'm talking and mm -hmm. in what context i'm in yeah, I, I take Chris Song's comment to heart that we, we shouldn't you know, reduce this to a proposition, but given that we talked about 10 words or less, I, I will give my uh, take on it. I, I think an account that, that comes to my mind is God is restoring all things and inviting us into the restoration. I, I think that encapsulates a lot of the various metaphors that we see throughout Scripture, which talk about the good news of what God is doing in the world through Jesus Christ. A question that I've had looking at the debate is, you know, you have one side that's emphasizing, like, this is your personal dealings with God, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you coming, facing your maker for your sin. Um, and then another side that's looking at this, but like, there's so much more that's going on here than just like your personal dealings with God, there's God's dealings with the whole world and what he's doing, you mm -hmm. know? Totally. And I, mm. I think from, again, thinking Kierkegaardianly <laughs> that there's that, it's the problem of the one and the many, right? But how do you not fall off either side of the horse and in collapsing into this solipsistic individualism mm -hmm. on one hand? And then on the other hand, how do you not as an individual, get lost in a in a story to where you're just kind of absorbed into something huge and way bigger than you. Maybe I can jump in here, Chris Porter. Maybe I can jump in and say that no matter how we may construct these definitions of the gospel or construe what it means to to have have belief in St. John's gospel. For every individual, there's going to be a social aspect to it. And for every social group, there's going to be individual aspects to it. As much as we may want to completely and neatly abstract it out so that it is either an individual relation 
relationship with God or it is a corporate implication of the gospel. They're two aspects which are inextricably entwined in our psyche. Uh, we define ourselves as individuals by the groups we're part of, and we define the groups we're part of by the individuals that make up those groups. And so I think in certainly in John's gospel, but Pistus belief does this massive range of of tasks in uh, I think 590 something uses within the gospel and they, they're both individual and corporate uh, at different times and so I think Amber you're absolutely correct you can't collapse the individual into the corporate and you can't uh, or you can't can't lose the individual into the corporate and you can't collapse the corporate into the individual yeah that's super super helpful Chris so, so Amber uh, what would you say about your construction of the gospel and, may, and maybe from a Kierkegaardian perspective rather than a biblical scholar's perspective, where does this definitional debate land for you? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question because looking at Kierkegaard at least, he's not going to give a specific here is the definition of the gospel and what it encompasses. Where He does have discussions on different elements of the gospel like what we have talked about today, but you're not going to find this sort of systematic in 10 words definition per se. So, but what, one of the things he's going to be more interested in, and I think this is kind of helpful to keep in mind as we're doing this kind of constructive theology, is he is going to be more interested in what does it mean not to know the truth, but to be in the truth? Because he's going to draw a strong distinction, and this has to do with how he understands knowing what it means to know something. And so there, it's one thing to know something about something, like know a factoid or, or a preposition. But he's going to say that the truth is a whole lot more than just a repository of propositions uh, that you know about, but that truth is fundamentally relational uh, or truth is subjectivity is sort of the, the phrase that gets a lot of attention um, and sometimes is really misunderstood, especially in by evangelicals in the past, because it sounds like he's saying truth is relative, uh, that it's just subjective to one's own personal preference and not connected or correspondent to an outs- ex- external objective reality. But that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that to be in the truth is more than just knowing some factoids, some correct facts. Um, but it describes a certain kind of relationship that you have with the truth. So instead of just knowing about something, what does it mean to actually be in a relationship with truth understood as being fraught with the personal? So like, or I know you guys, I know different things about you, where you're located, what you're studying, what you're doing, et cetera. Um, But knowing you is different and stalkers know things about people but we wouldn't say that they know people. I think Chris Song kind of touched on this earlier, that it's ultimately a personal kind of knowledge. There's an excess to it that just the propositions can't bear in and of themselves. That doesn't mean it's contentless, but it means that there's something more than I just know about this doctrine or I know about this particular area of theology. Um, so he's going he's gonna to talk about how being in relation to a, the truth involves a whole person self-giving. It's, he talks a lot about it like a leaning in. Uh, so less, less like a leap, <laughs> which he's often accused of, and more like a leaning in of the whole person. And it, it's allowing that truth to be transformative of you as a person. So not just something that you memorize, not just a proposition, not just a dogmatic statement or a summarized doctrine that you kind of cognitively assent to. 
like salvation doesn't come through my belief in the doctrine of justification, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. It's ultimately a relationship with the justifier, with with the one who is justifier and who's also king and who's also heavenly father and all of these things. It's a very robust kind of thing. It's a whole person type of relationship and leaning, not just a, a mental head nod uh, or a, a cognitive agreement with something. Because it's it's one thing to have the right answers and to know the propositions and to memorize the definitions. And I don't think he, he wouldn't say that that endeavor is worthless. It's actually very important. But it needs to be couched in this broader context of a more robust understanding of what it means to know something, or in our case, to know someone, uh, which is Christ. Amber, I think that's a, a wonderful reflection on the the gospel and the requirement really of the relationship that we have in the gospel, no matter what our definition is, it's still relational and it's personal. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you guys for jumping in on this as we think about what the gospel is and and try and make sense of some of the things that are blowing up our, our news feeds at the moment, especially thinking through how we want to talk about the gospel, the nature of our discourse around the gospel, how we sort of inevitably create insiders and outsiders, depending on how narrowly we might define the gospel. I'm thinking through some of these issues about the breadth of of what the gospel is all about, what God is doing in the world through Jesus Christ. I think this has been a really great discussion. Of course, there'll be a lot more that we could chat about and look forward to future conversations along those lines. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. This has been fun. like more engagement of theology, culture, and discipleship from the two cities, you can find us on Facebook or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com.